What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, it's obscure. I'm Michael Ian Black, and uh, it's very exciting here today at the library because we have completed part the first in Jude the Obscure and we are about to go to part second. I'm at a loss. I don't know what's going to happen, but there's a clue right in the very title page of part second. It says at Christminster. So it looks like Jude has somehow stumbled his way to his Jerusalem, his city on the hill, his seat of higher learning, Christ Minster, Jude, who has gone through so much already to rise above his obscurity, is now on his way. And then there's a, there's a, uh, what do you call those things? Epigraph? I have to tell you that once again, I am drinking seltzer, ruby red grapefruit, 100% natural seltzer. And so... If I should pause like I just did, know that it's not because I don't know what to say, but because I have a gas bubble in my throat and I'm burping. I'm burping salsa. It's an epigraph. I don't know. Is that what it's called? Where the, the quote before the thing? And the first one is, save his own soul. He hath no star. And that's attributed to Swinburne. Save his own soul. He hath no star. I honestly, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It's eight words. And like most poetic sentences, I don't understand it. Save his own soul. Oh, 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 meaning um, except for his own soul, he hath no star, meaning except for his soul, which guides him. He has nothing else. He has nothing else that guides him except for his own soul. Got it. And then this one is from Ovid and it is in Latin. So 
God damn it. All right. I'm going to read it out loud and then I'm going to look it up. No tiatium primos great. I mean, um, it, there's no even, there's no point in me even trying to pronounce the Latin, but I'm, I'm going to look it up. Uh, okay. The first thing that comes up, primos gratis. No tiatium. Ah, proximity. Oh, Here's a little foreshadowing, guys. Okay, so here's the quote. Notiatum primasque gratis, gratis vicieni. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it, I feel the fool even trying to pronounce it, but it says proximity caused their first acquaintance and their first advances in love. With time, their affection increased. So perhaps Jude is going to get another shot at what Ovid calls Amore. So we've heard about the star in the sky, right? And then there's going to be love. And then I said Amore. And then when the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's Obscure. The next noteworthy move in Jude's life was that in which he appeared gliding steadily onward through a dusky landscape of some three years later leafage than had graced his courtship of Arabella and the disruption of his coarse conjugal life with her. In other words, three years later. He could have literally just said three years later, comma, but no, he was walking towards Christminster City at a point a mile or two to the southwest of it. He had at last found himself clear of Mary Green and Alfredston. He was out of his apprenticeship and with his tools at his back seemed to be in the way of making a new start. The start to which, barring the interruption involved in his intimacy and married experience with Arabella, he had been looking forward for about 10 years. He's out of his apprenticeship, so now Jude has become a stonemason in his own right, and he's walking. He's walked clear of Mary Green. He's walked clear of Alfredston. He's only a mile or two to the southwest of Christminster. He has its spires in its in his sight. He can no doubt hear the bells pealing, saying, you will be happy here. You will be happy here. Jude would now have been described as a young man with a forcible, meditative, and earnest rather than handsome cast of countenance. He was of dark complexion, with dark, harmonizing eyes. I like that, harmonizing eyes. And he wore a closely trimmed black beard of more advanced growth than usual at his age. This, with his great mass of black, curly hair, was some trouble to him in combing and washing out the stone dust that settled on it in the pursuit of his trade. His capabilities in the latter, having been acquired in the country, were of an all-round sort, including monumental stone-cutting, gothic free stonework for the restoration of churches, and carving of a general kind. In London, he would probably have become specialized and have made himself a molding mason, a foliage sculptor, perhaps a statuary. So I guess in London, where they have stonemasons coming out of their ears, you have to specialize carving leaves or carving moldings or some such thing. Now, if I were 
to specialize in some sort of stonemasonry, what would I specialize in? Probably something like curbs, curbs or walls. Here in the wilds of Connecticut, the place is lousy with stone walls. And the reason is because the ground here is so rocky from the Ice Age. And the farmers who came originally and settled, the rocks uh, were everywhere. And they had to till these fields for plantings and for farmings of various kinds. And in order to get their seed into the ground, they had to plow up all these rocks. They would get these rocks up and then they would create stone walls with them to mark their property. So everywhere here in the wilds of Connecticut are these grand stone walls from the last ice age. And uh, in fact, as I turn around to look out my view here at the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library on my property is in fact a stone wall, which is not uh, native to my property, but was assembled, was assembled in more recent times in order to protect the little froggies in the wetlands behind my house. We have wetlands here and little peepers and turtles and such in the springtime come and make love and create new little peepers and new little turtles by town ordinance that has to be protected. And so there's a stone wall that comes to a kind of caddy corner to kind of mark the area where the wetlands are. And there's a hole in the wall, dear Liza, dear Liza. There's a hole in the wall for the peepers and turtles and frogs and snakes and fox and such to get in and out. He had that afternoon driven in a cart from Alfredston to the village nearest the city in this direction and was now walking the remaining four miles rather from choice than from necessity, having always fancied himself arriving thus. The ultimate impulse to come had had a curious origin, one more nearly related to the emotional side of him than to the intellectual, as is often the case with young men. One day, while in lodgings at Alfredston, he had gone to Mary Green to see his old aunt, and did you hear how I said old aunt, and had observed between the brass candlesticks on her mantelpiece the photograph of a pretty girlish face in a broad hat with radiating folds under the brim like the rays of a halo. He had asked who she was. His great-aunt had gruffly replied that she was his cousin Sue Bridehead of the inimical branch of the family, and on further questioning, the old woman had replied that the girl lived in Christminster, though she did not know where or what she was doing. Well, hold on a second. This seems like a very convenient piece of information, but I don't understand why he had never inquired about this gal before. Now, his aunt, his terrible aunt Drusilla, who wishes he were dead, had been raising this boy essentially uh, from his toddler years. And she must have known that Jude had some design on going to Christminster. He had discussed it with her. 
Never did she say, oh, yes, you have a cousin Sue who lives in Christminster. I do not know what she's doing, but if you decide to go, maybe you want to look her up. Nor did Jude apparently notice that there was a photograph of her on the mantelpiece. So either the photograph is new. And keep in mind, this is the 1890s. Like photography is rare. So where did she get this photograph? Obviously, if the photograph is new, right? And Sue had sent it to her. What the hell was Sue doing sending this random aunt a photograph? She wouldn't have, right? Unless they were close. And if they were close, how did Drusilla never mention this cousin of Jude's to him before? This all seems very odd to me. There's a mystery. The mystery has been planted and already it has deepened into a ripe, luminescent color. His aunt just does not give him information. Uh, Relatives of him have been hung. There's a lady in Christminster. He knows not of his parents. Like he doesn't know anything. It goes on. His aunt would not give him the photograph. The hell does he need the photograph for? Maybe so when he goes to Christminster, he can recognize her. You know, if he's just walking around the streets going, have you seen this girl? His aunt would not give him the photograph, but it haunted him and ultimately formed a quickening ingredient in his latent intent of following his friend, the schoolmaster, thither. He now paused at the top of a crooked and gentle declivity and obtained his first near view of the city. Grey-stoned and dun-roofed, it stood within hail of the Wessex border, and almost with the tip of one small toe within it, at the northernmost point of the crinkled line along which the leisurely Thames strokes the fields of that ancient kingdom. The buildings now lay quiet in the sunset, a vein here and there on their many spires and domes, giving sparkle to a picture of sober, secondary, and tertiary hues. So it's mostly gray, I guess, but there's some secondary and tertiary hues. You know, there's a little bit of slate color and a little bit of putty color. It's, I mean, it has all the colors of a peacock's feather when you think of it, if the peacock We're in black and white. Reaching the bottom, he moved along the level way between pollard willows growing indistinct in the twilight and soon confronted the outmost lamps of the town. Some of those lamps which had sent into the sky the gleam and glory that caught his strained gaze in his days of dreaming so many years ago, they winked their yellow eyes at him dubiously and as if, though they had been awaiting him all these years in disappointment at his tarrying, they did not much want him now. Well, I mean, that is just the story of Jude's life, right? Nobody wants him much now. And yet there he is. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Womp it up, y'all. It's on Earwolf. And if you haven't checked in in a while, I would say now's the time. Womp It Up is where everyone's favorite comedy bang bang intern, Marissa Wampler, who is Jessica St. Clair, and her co-host, Charlotte Listler, who is really Lennon Parham, give listeners a front row seat to the madness the madness and joy of the Marina Del Rey lifestyle. So they have this world, the Marina Del Rey High School. And Marissa and Listler interview a different, colorful character from that world, and they give listeners relationship advice. Who's their latest guest, Michael? I'll tell you. She's got a show on Netflix, Nailed It, or her podcast, Why Won't You Date Me? And, and, and all your favorite characters always coming by. If you love Comedy Bang Bang, you're going to super love this. Listen to Womp It Up on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Earwolf.com, or wherever you listen. You're listening to Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. Let's get back to the book. He was a species of Dick Whittington. What? All right, damn it. Now I have to look up what Dick Whittington is or who Dick Whittington is. Dick Whittington. Ah, Dick Whittington and his cat is the English folklore Surround, this is from Wikipedia, surrounding the real life Richard Whittington, 1354 to 1423, wealthy merchant and later Lord Mayor of London. So he rose from poverty. He made his fortune through the sale of his cat to a rat infested country. Jude has no cat to offer other than his cat like wit. So I guess he's just a, he's in, in, uh, in, in America, we would say he's a Horatio Alger, a, a rags to riches story. He was a species of Dick Whittington whose spirit was touched to finer issues than a mere material gain. He went along the outlying streets with the cautious tread of an explorer. He saw nothing of the real city in the suburbs on this side, his first want being a lodging. He scrutinized carefully such localities as seemed to offer on inexpensive terms the modest type of accommodation he demanded, and after inquiry, took a room in a suburb nicknamed Beersheba, though he did not know this at the time. 
uh, I guess I guess that's a pun on Bathsheba. And and if I had to guess, because I am a professional comedian, I would guess that it means there's a lot of beer beer there. Here he installed himself, and having had some tea, sallied forth. So he's now on the edges of Christminster itself. He is on the suburbs. He has found lodging. It is the night. He's had some tea. He has fortified himself. After all these years of struggling to get here, he is now here, and he is not going to waste a moment. It was a windy, whispering, moonless night. To guide himself, he opened under a lamp a map he had brought. The breeze ruffled and fluttered it, but he could see enough to decide on the direction he should take to reach the heart of the place. After many turnings, he came up to the first ancient medieval pile that he had encountered. It was a college, as he could see by the gateway. He entered it, walked round, and penetrated to dark corners which no lamplight reached. Close to this college was another, and a little further on another, and then he began to be encircled, as it were, with the breath and sentiment of the venerable city. When he passed objects out of harmony with its general expression, he allowed his eyes to slip over them as if he did not see them. A bell began clanging, and he listened till a hundred and one strokes had sounded. He must have made a mistake, he thought. It was meant for a hundred. Well, what bell rings a hundred and one times? How annoying is that? What the hell was it signifying? The only thing that it could possibly be signifying is the number of Dalmatians. That is the only thing worth noting that comes by the number a hundred and one. That's a terrible bell. Look, I don't want to judge. I don't want to be judgy, but that's a terrible bell. A bell, if it rings, at, I mean, if it rings 12 times to signal the hour after about eight or nine, you're like, I get it. It's late. Like, what else do I need to know? Stop your peeling. Stop your clanging. Stop telling me you will be happy here. So anyway, Jude is looking around and he's like, a college, a college, a college, everywhere, a college. Everywhere is learning here. Nobody's about, but I can tell through the gateways that these are all schools. These are all institutions. These are all the places I have troubled myself so greatly to reach. And I have now reached them. And anything that does not say college on it, I shall not even see. So he sees a college, a college, a college. He sees a Buffalo Wild Wings. He's like, I don't even see that Buffalo Wild Wings. That Buffalo Wild Wings does not even exist for me. Talk to me when you get hungry, you know? Talk to me when you get hungry and you're looking for good buffalo wings. You can't find them in London or Christminster that easily. But Jude, if you want good buffalo wings, trust Buffalo Wild Wings. They do a nice job. When the gates were shut and he could no longer get into the quadrangles, he rambled under the walls and doorways, feeling with his fingers the contours of their moldings and carving. 
The minutes passed. Fewer and fewer people were visible, and still he serpentined among the shadows. For had he not imagined these scenes through ten bygone years? And what mattered a night's rest for once? High against the black sky, the flash of a lamp would show crocketed pinnacles and indented battlements. Down obscure alleys, apparently never trodden now by the foot of man in whose very existence seemed to be forgotten. There would jut into the path porticos, oriels, doorways of enriched and florid middle-aged design, their extinct air being accentuated by the rottenness of the stones. It seemed impossible that modern thought could house itself in such decrepit and superseded chambers. It's it's an ancient place, Christminster. It's a bit like... um, uh, oh, what's the name of the town there in Harry Potter, where there's Diagonal Alley and all of that, and it's a place of, uh, it's labyrinthian. Do you hear me? Labyrinthian. And perhaps there's even a minotaur there waiting to gobble poor Jude up. Well, we know bad things are going to happen. We don't know the nature of them. Perhaps it's a minotaur waiting to gobble him up. I'm going to take a sip of my seltzer. It really depends on what time I record, what kind of beverage I will be imbibing. As you know, it's often a hot cup of tea. In the morning, it's a hot cup of tea. And then later in the afternoon, it's a, it's a hot cup of different tea. But in between, it is often seltzer pop. Knowing not a human being here... Jude began to be impressed with the isolation of his own personality as with a self-specter, the sensation being that of one who walked but could not make himself seen or heard. He drew his breath pensively and seeming thus almost his own ghost, gave his thoughts to the other ghostly presences which which the nooks were haunted." Well, that's kind of a beautiful paragraph. He feels himself being alone and does not know anybody there and so imagines himself as a ghost fucking phone. Nobody ever calls me that I want to speak to, but we still have this fucking landline. It's ghosts calling me. It's nobody I want to speak with. Nobody I care to speak with. So that's kind of a beautiful paragraph. Jude, alone, isolated, recognizes uh, that he is like a ghost, a self-specter, he says, and sees that these rocks, these hidden alleyways where nobody has walked in Jude's mind in centuries also contain ghosts. And here, here among these ghosts is modern knowledge. How could that be? During the interval of preparation for this venture, since his wife and furniture's uncompromising disappearance into space. <laughs> yes, it was uncompromising. The wife and the furniture did disappear. Both of those things are true. He had read and learnt almost all that could be read and learnt by one in his position. Of the worthies who had spent their youth within these revered walls and whose souls had haunted them in their maturer age. Some of them, by the accidents of his reading, loomed out in his fancy disproportionately 
oh, in his fancy, right, loomed out in his fancy, disproportionately large by comparison with the rest. The brushing of the wind against the angles, buttresses, and door jams were as the passing of these only other inhabitants. The tappings of each ivy leaf on its neighbor were as the mutterings of their mournful souls. The shadows as their thin shapes in nervous movement, making him comrades in his solitude. In the gloom, it was as if he ran against them without feeling their bodily frames. Have you ever done that? Have you ever walked along in a city and thought about all the people who have lived there before you? I do that all the time when I'm in New York. I mean, you pass them, there's plaques on the buildings and it says, here's where Theodore Dreiser wrote whatever Theodore Dreiser wrote and here's where Teddy Roosevelt was raised and and here's where Washington Irving lived and wrote his scary, scary books. What's weird though, and this will will be an aside, what's weird though, because I spent a lot of time in New York, both as a teenager as an adult, a young adult, and, and, and still to this day, I spend a lot of time in New York. And what's weird is because New York is always being torn down and built back up, you'll pass places that no longer exist. And I guess this is true in all cities, but it feels especially acute in New York. On a certain level, the city doesn't change at all. In a certain way, yeah, buildings go up, but the place feels the same. But a lot of times as you get older, you feel as if you're walking among these ghosts. Like if I walk on the Bowery now and I pass by where CBGB's once stood and I think about all the legendary punk rockers and I think about going to see the Sugar Cubes when I was 18, my freshman year of college and standing about six inches away from Bjork and just falling in love with her as she was parading around the stage singing birthday and such and then seeing her again years later on 23rd street and 6th avenue at madison square park and she was as 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 i was older and seemed to fade into new york a little bit in a way that you don't think of bjork fading into anything but there she was and passing sinead o'connor on the street maybe my favorite singer i know that's an unpopular thing to say But passing Sinead O'Connor once on 42nd Street, her head was shaven, as it often is, and she was probably in her mid-30s at that point, late 30s. And, uh, you know, you just think about all the people that you've known walking on these same city streets and how the people that you see now are, in a lot of ways, identical. You can almost recognize your own friends in the strangers that you see walking on the streets. It's a very bizarre thing because these people, these young people, I think about, you know, people in their late teens, early twenties as the people that I knew in New York, they have the same energy and they have the same vibe and they have the same spirit, but they're not the same people, although in some ways they are. And so you're constantly confronted with ghosts And it's kind of a beautiful thing. And I can already project myself into the future, assuming that I live into the future, which is not a given, but I can project myself 70 years old, 80 years old, walking down those same streets. And so that's what Jude's doing, stumbling around Christminster in the middle of the night, his hands grazing stone buildings and his feet on these cobblestone streets that have been there for hundreds of years. 
and imagining all the scholars like him who have come before, people just like Jude, people from probably obscure backgrounds just like him who had done everything in their power to better themselves and have found themselves there in Christminster, in these colleges, at this same Buffalo Wild Wings location. But really, when you're talking about walking through land haunted by ghosts, who would know better than that? than an Irish person. And my friend Maeve Higgins happens to be one, and a funny one at that. And she's not only walked through a lot of haunted Irish streets, but like Jude, she had the experience of coming to a new place in search of something more. If you're not familiar with Maeve Higgins, she was this established comedian in Ireland, and she decided to move to New York. And she is the host of the podcast, Maeve in America, Immigration IRL, and also co-hosts a show with Neil deGrasse Tyson on the National Geographic channel. She wrote a great book recently called Maven America. Uh, and let's find out if she also has this lonely feeling when she moved to New York of, of, of being in a new city and walking among the ghosts. Yeah, and the weird thing is also when you go back to where you came from, you get that feeling again. Right. You've there and you still... So, yeah, but certainly when I came here, there was a lot of familiarity because you know, I had seen it on, you know, TV and movies, as I'm sure Jude the Obscure, if he had access to Netflix. He, he did. Seen, he did, okay. But, yeah. it, but I mean, he was he was yeah. poor. It was all DVDs. He didn't have the, the, the streaming. Yeah, <laughs> Blu-rays. <laughs> but yeah, um, it, there was a familiarity, but there was certainly, you know, it, it started off as like, oh, this anonymity is so fun and like I can do anything and there's no consequences and then it was kind of like I need to talk to somebody right (laughs) that's exactly how he feels but the person yeah well the person he decides to talk to I'm not quite there because he's been sort of dragging this out for pages and pages and pages is he (laughs) he has this cousin he's never met named Sue Bridehead and you can take from that name whatever it is you want but he has fallen in love with her from a distance. Well, like she's that emoji. <laughs> yeah, she does. She sounds like that emoji. Um, that's who he's thinking about going I to mean, see. I can't believe this because I don't know if I told you this when I saw you last, but at my book event in the Strand, there was a guy in the audience who I recognized, but I couldn't place him. And you know when you're on stage and there's lots of faces that you know and... Yeah. Other people that you friends of friends or whatever. And when he came up to get his book signed, I said to him, Where did we meet? I knew just from the look of him that he was Irish. Mm-hmm. And he said, No, no, he said, We haven't met before. And I said, No, we have. I'm sure we have. And I asked him to stick around because there was a, a group of us going for drinks afterwards. And at the drinks thing, he said, You know, my, my mom told me that we have family in Cole, which is where I'm from. Mm. And that like maybe we might be you know related anyway the next day we both phoned our moms and we connected again and he's my cousin really (laughs) yeah he's my third cousin i just spotted him in the crowd and i was very drawn to him and since then we've been spending tons of time together and he like comes and walks my dog when i'm not home and yeah it's so funny That's so strange that you just felt this kinship with this dude and you just sort of intimately recognized him, well, as being your countryman, one. And then two, you're like, hey, stranger, hang out. Let's get drinks. And then it turns out you're cousins. 
Yeah, which I have never, I don't think I've ever done that before. If I met him in Ireland and he was my distant cousin, like poor old Jude and and Brighthead, then (laughs) it wouldn't be a big deal because it's like, yeah, of course it's your cousin. You're from a small place and like everyone's (laughs) But the fact that I met him, that he was over here already, like making his way and I was here too and there's like millions of people and then he like came to the show and I knew him it just feels like more special than just a normal cousin like distant cousin relationship well I don't know what's going to happen with Jude and his cousin but but his feelings about Sue Bridehead uh I suspect are less chaste than your feelings about your third cousin like if you were to fall in love with your third cousin I'd be like well that's fine but Jude is kind of falling in love with his first cousin, and even 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 he knows it's a little weird. Certainly, because you know they could have children with little tails or something. Yes, that's that's exactly what he's worried about: tailed, betailed children. <laughs> <laughs> So when you go back now and you said that you walk among the ghosts, I know that feeling because I feel like that now going back to New York. I mean, I I live close to New York, but every time I'm there now, after any extended absence, I feel like I'm just walking in my own, the shadows of my own footsteps because you see everything changing around you or staying the same. And I do think, I mean, I feel like a city turns its back on you when you leave (laughs) and, you know, I don't know that like a place has has a kind of a personality, but it definitely has a persona that like I guess we project onto it. Right. But when I go back to Dublin, I feel like Dublin is like we don't even need you anyway. Like I feel like <laughs> because I left, that like now Dublin rejects me, and like literally I go back and it's the same. You know, I used to have a writing space on um, on Wicklow Street, a street in Dublin, and. You know, there's the same grocery, there's the same um, man begging, he has these bright blue eyes, like it's all the same. And I'm there and I'm like, hey, is everything back to normal? And it's like, no, you left. <laughs> it gives me the shivers a little bit because it makes me think, oh, I guess when I'm dead too, that like the face will be like, we didn't need you anyway. No, no, when you're dead, it'll shut down. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Do you, is there dingle cream near your wedding space? Do you know that place? <laughs> ice cream, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's the Murphy's ice cream from Dingle. Yeah, that's that's literally opposite the place I used to write. That's so funny, Michael, that you know that place. The only reason I know it, when I was there with my son, we 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 just had such delight in the name Dingle Cream, and then <laughs> we went there two or three times. <laughs> Yeah, it's good. It's good ice cream. Do you ever experience this? Now, this is something I experienced in New York, which is not only do I feel like I'm sort of walking in my own footsteps, but I feel like I'm seeing people from my past because, I mean, they're not the same people. You mentioned like literally the same people, but I feel like I see archetypes just walking around and I recognize them so intimately. Mm -hmm. So you see like, young drama kids or, yes. or like older people who say schmata but they're not Jewish <laughs> but they've been in New York for so long. Yes. It's, it, the city is filled with drama kids and older people saying schmata and that <laughs> that's New York to a T. 
the thing is too, you know what I was saying earlier about like cities kind of having personas and like the thing about New York is you come here for a reason and like so people are really focused and I think that's the kind of drama that you know you feel when you're here and maybe when you've achieved that thing or given up on that thing then New York is going to feel different too you know yeah I think that's right the city kind of stays the same but your perception of it obviously changes a tremendous amount and I'm sure that's true for every city in the world or every town in the world I have one more final question for you um, which is really not relevant to anything other than my own tastes and your Irish heritage, which is that I think Sinead O'Connor might be my favorite singer. Uh, and I was wondering what your opinion is on Sinead O'Connor. Oh, she's a magnificent singer. Magnificent. Oh, completely. I mean, you know, I don't know about when she writes her own songs, and I hate saying that about anybody. But actually, it's fine, because, like, her instrument is her voice. Yeah. I guess when she sings, you know, nothing compares to you, the word that's Prince, like, there's, there's, you know, nothing... Nothing Nothing compares to it? Well, Maeve Higgins, thank you so much. You're a delight, as always. Bye. Bye. Maeve Higgins, my lovely listeners, I'm going to take a break and then read a little bit more Jude the Obscure. Welcome back to Obscure. I'm Michael Ian Black. I'm still here with my fizzy water, and Jude is still walking around Christminster. Let us read on, shall we? The streets were now deserted, but on account of these things he could not go in. There were poets abroad, of early date and of late, from the friend and eulogist of Shakespeare down to him, who has recently passed into silence, and that musical one of the tribe who is still among us. I think there he's talking about David Byrne of the Talking Heads. Speculative philosophers drew along, not always with wrinkled foreheads and hoary hair as if as in framed portraits, but pink-faced, slim, and active as in youth. Modern divines sheeted in their surpluses, surpluses? It's spelled S-U-R-P-L-I-C-E, sheeted in their surplices? I'm going to look it up. Surplice. It's a loose white linen vestment varying from hip length to calf length, worn over a cassock by clergy, acolytes, and choristers at Christian church services. So, you know, just, um, you know, like potato sack. Yeah. Modern divines sheeted in their surplice. How do you pronounce it? Surplus. Surplus. So like the other surplus surpluses, uh, among whom the most real to Jude Fowley were the founders of the religious school called Tractarian, the well-known three, the enthusiast, the poet, and the formularist. Formularist? Jeez. So now we're getting into stuff that I don't understand at all. So do I have to look up Tractarian? My God, this has been an exhausting episode of looking up things. Tractarian movement. The thoughts 
of Anglicanism, Anglicanism as one of the three branches of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The movement's philosophy was known as Tractarianism. After a series of publications, the tracts were the times published from 1833 to 1841. Uh, so this is a relatively new movement within the church that Jude has found himself attracted to. So the echoes of whose teachings had influenced him even in his obscure home. A start of aversion appeared in his fancy to move them at sight of those other sons of the place. What? We're getting into some Christian shit that I don't understand. I have to go back and see if I can figure this out. A start of aversion appeared in his fancy to move them at sight of those other sons of the place, the form in the full-bottomed wig, statesman, rake, reasoner, and skeptic, the smoothly shaven historian so ironically civil to Christianity, with others of the same incredulous temper who knew each quad as well as the faithful and took equal freedom in haunting its cloisters. So he's basically just listing, I think, all the people who were there, right? The other sons of the place, uh, the form in the full bottom wig, statesman, rake, reasoner, skeptic, all the other people who have been there. It, I might be getting that wrong, but it feels unimportant to me. You know, sometimes you get to a story where you're just like, just tell me what happened. Stop describing. Tell me what happened. He regarded the statesmen in their various types, men of firmer movement and less dreamy air, the scholar, the speaker, the plotter, the man whose mind grew with his growth in years, and the man whose mind contracted with the same. The scientists and philologists followed on in his mind sight in an odd, in an odd, impossible combination. Men of meditative faces, strained foreheads, and weak-eyed as bats with constant research. Then official characters, such men as governor generals and lord lieutenants, in whom he took little interest. Chief justices and lord chancellors, silent, thin-lipped figures of whom he barely knew the names. A keener regard attached to the prelates by reason of his own former hopes. Of them, he had an ample band, some men of heart, others rather men of head. He who apologized for the church in Latin, the saintly author of the evening hymn, and near them, the great itinerant preacher, hymn writer, and zealot shadowed like Jude by his matrimonial difficulties." Jude found himself speaking out loud, holding conversations with them as it were, like an actor in a melodrama who apostrophizes the audience on the other side of the footlights till he suddenly ceased with a start at his absurdity. Perhaps those incoherent words of the wanderer were heard within the walls by some student or thinker over his lamp, and he may have raised his head and wondered what voice it was and what it betokened. Jude now perceived that, so far as solid flesh went, he had the whole aged city to himself, with the exception of a belated townsman here and there, and that he seemed to be catching a cold. Well, I think I will end there with Jude about to catch a cold, talking to the ghosts in Christminster. What does it mean for Jude to be about to catch a cold? Now, he could become infected with the fever of knowledge as he has been for, lo, these 10 years past. Or 
he could become infected with a fever that lays him down, where he cannot proceed. He has been wandering these cold streets by himself. He has not wanted to waste a moment, fortified only with a cup of tea from Beersheba. Who knows? I mean, this could be another impediment to Jude. What's going to happen? He has now come to the end of the beginning of his journey. He has found himself in Christminster among all the ghosts, the zealots, the general governors, the governor generals, the lord chancellors, the chief justices, the zealots, the ascetics, the poets, the philosophers. And he is there among them, communing with them in a kind of fevered speech. And now we understand that he himself is literally fevered. Maybe he will die. And that will be the end of the book. And then the great joke will be that the rest of the pages are blank. And Thomas Hardy will have had us all for fools, although I suspect that's not the case. All right, I'm stretching. I'm taking a final sip of my seltzer. I'm going to walk my property. I'm going to run my fingers along the stone walls that protect the peepers. And I am going to sign off. I feel like this journey has been... Uh, terrific. We have wandered ourselves from Mary Green on now to Christminster, and I do not want this journey to end. So we'll pick it up next time. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at earwolf.com. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedron. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. From the wilds of Connecticut, I'm Michael Ian Black. This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Riza Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents. We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf, bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que no está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aki Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Hola, Nezea. Spanish Aki Presents. <laughs>